The scripture passage for this morning comes from Numbers chapter 29, verses 4 through 9. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on their way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. This is God's word. We're closing out our series on the life of Moses in the book of Exodus by looking at a passage from Numbers. And I wanted to give you a brief, just a brief background, a summary of what's going on here. The Israelites, they've been rescued by God, carried across the Red Sea, and now wandering in the desert. They received the law, they're wandering in the desert, and God as they're wandering, gives them manna. He provides food for them. Uh, But the people, they grow very impatient. That's what it says here. They grew impatient. And they're wandering, and there's no bread, and there's no water. So what do they do? They detest the food. And as a result, what happens? God sends these venomous snakes who bite them, and a lot of people die. Now, this is an incredible narrative. It's a very interesting narrative, very nuanced. A lot of people here struggle with this passage. It kind of makes, it's one of those passages that pastors want to, wish weren't in the Bible sometimes. Uh, A lot of people struggle with this passage because it seems very typical of that angry God that people see in the Old Testament because he sends these venomous snakes. Now, I want to submit to you today that this is not a disproportionate response. This is not overkill. A lot of people say, that's such overkill. But it's not overkill. Because what God is doing here is he's trying to teach us the seriousness of the real disease, the real illness that's killing everybody. And it's sin. And brace yourselves. You don't have to brace yourselves. There are, I'm going to tell you seven things today. Seven things. Don't brace yourselves. You know, it's, it's, it's not going to end any, uh, any later. Uh, seven things today. What happens when you go to the hospital? You get a diagnosis. They run some tests. You check on the family history. You look at the symptoms. They prep you for the procedure. Then there's the cure. And then there are some prescriptions. Seven things. I'm going to run through one more time. There's a diagnosis of sin. Then we run some tests. We look at the family history. Take a look at the symptoms. Prepare you. Prepare you for the procedure. Turn to the cure. And then there are some prescriptions at the end, right? That's what happens. Successful procedure, that's what happens. First, we're going to look at the diagnosis. Diagnosis of sin. Look, verses 4 and 5. God rescues the Israelites. He protects the Israelites. He gathers them at Sinai. He gives them the law, makes them his people, his treasured people, leads them through the desert with his Shekinah glory presence. With his fire, he provides them with water. He provides them with manna, food every morning, sufficient, just enough for the day. 
It's a representation of his power. It's a representation of his provision. It's also a representation of his love, his protection. God is near. God is intimate. He desires intimacy. You have to take him in. The very act of eating something, you're taking something in. He wants to be taken into, into you. But what do the people do? They reject the manna. They actually they say, we detest this miserable food. The text says they grow impatient. And this is the problem with sin. You know, in 1945, well, until 1945, the average intellectual person in America for probably over 100 years since the Enlightenment era, they basically said this. They summarized the human condition like this. Human beings are essentially good. They're essentially good, um, but the reason why we have wars and injustice and crime and rape and racism and violence is really because of bad social conditioning the environment that these people are in. They're just bad examples in their lives, bad education, there's poverty everywhere. But really, there are two major issues with that conclusion, if you think about it. Number one, if we are the most educated, socially, culturally, economically advanced generation in the history of the world, and we are capable of also being the most violent generation in the world, then you have to include, it can't be, the reason it can't be because of bad education or bad social conditioning. It can't be because of that. The second thing you have to think about is that any symptom, if you think about any symptom that you have in life, it can have very simple consequences. You know, it just comes and goes, it's passing. Or the same symptom can actually have very deep-reaching consequences. In other words, like a headache could mean a result of you not having enough water or you're not sleeping very well. Uh, very simple sources, very simple consequences, but it could also be a tumor. It could also be something that's very, very far-reaching, something that's deadly. Something as small as a headache could be something that's really eating away at the inner parts of your being, the vitals of your life. Now, the Bible says that there are signs that are on the surface. It doesn't seem that bad. It doesn't seem very potent in life, but it could turn you into a monster. And it's called sin. And it's serious. It's deadly. And that's the reason why God treats this so seriously. Now you say, but really, come on, they were just complaining. They were just grumbling, right? I mean, in this passage, they were just complaining because they got the same food every day. I'd be like that too. They said this, we want more. We want other things. We had it better in other places. We don't like this food. Now, it doesn't seem very serious. It seems really just like a headache. But only a doctor knows the difference between a headache that is very, very simple because you didn't drink enough water or you didn't get enough sleep, and a headache that comes because there's something very, very terrible inside. And really what, you, what he does is a doctor would perform tests. He performs all kinds of tests. And really that's what's going on here. That's what God is doing here because he knew, God knew that they're complaining and they're arguing, their dissatisfaction, their discontent here is really a headache that's pointing to something deeply just deadly, absolutely terrible. There's a difference, you know, between a knife that's wielded by a homicidal maniac and a knife that's held by a surgeon. The difference is really life and death. And what's really serious about sin here is this. The nature of sin is that it makes us feel like nothing is ever good enough. 
our jobs are not good enough, our situations are not good enough, the people I'm dating, the, you know, they're not good enough, the person I'm married to, he or she is not good enough, nothing is good enough. So what does God do? Well, the second thing he does, second point, the thing he does is he runs some tests. He runs some tests. In this passage, in verse 6, God sends these venomous snakes. Now, the Hebrew word for these uh, snakes is saraf, or another way you could read it is sarfin. Now, what, what really means here is it's the flaming ones, the flaming ones. Angels are sometimes called seraphim because they appeared in like a blazing fire and a blazing torch. So these, in essence, were fiery snakes. Now, they weren't snakes on fire, but they were snakes that really they had a poison, they had a venom that when they bit you, the symptoms would occur in such a way that first, it would, you would have this tremendous fever. You would have this incredible thirst. It'd be like a fire that's eating away at your body until eventually it consumes you and you die. Dehydration, you die of this fever. One of the most painful ways to die is, uh, is dehydration. They say it's like an internal fire. At some point, it starts as a headache, but eventually becomes this internal fire, this burning inside. It's like hell. A fire that's raging inside you. And it's because, you know, if you think about what hell is, Hell is just that. It's a fire because your thirsts have become unfulfilled. What Scripture is saying is this. This is the seriousness of sin. It's why we're always dissatisfied. It's why we're never grateful. Deep inside, there's this poison that's inside you, this venom that's coursing through you, this fire that's in your souls. It's insatiable. You can't quench it. This spiritual thirst, this fever, and it's destroying you. It's eating away at you, little by little. It's the real disease which this passage here, this narrative, is only a picture of the real thing that's burning you up. This is why the fiery serpents are really just a test. God sends them really as a test. It's absolutely proportional to what's going on here. God is showing an accurate picture of what's really going on in our hearts, that complaining, the grumbling that's taking place. He knew. Only a doctor knows the difference. He knew that it's caused by sin. He knew that it's because of their discontent, their, their dissatisfaction with him. That's what's really going on. Now, where did it come from? We've got to look at the family history. That's the third point. The family history, the Bible gives us a root of what's really wrong with the human condition. And it begins with the narrative about the Garden of Eden. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, if you go all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, you go all the way back to the first sin, it began with another snake. It begins with another serpent. Now, what was it? People say, well, the sin was obviously they disobeyed. They disobeyed God. Yeah, they disobeyed. But why did they disobey? First of all, there was paradise. They were in paradise. There was no sin. There was no disease. There's no sadness. You can do anything you want in this paradise. And the serpent approaches Adam and Eve. And the serpent asks, can you really do anything? I mean, you can do anything in this garden? And they respond, well, you can't do anything there's this tree here. And they kind of distort God's words, and they say, well, you, you, God says you can't even touch this tree. Now, uh, the sin was not that they disobeyed. The serpent, he asks them, are you really happy with that? Are you really satisfied with this? I mean, look at the tree. It's pleasing to the eye. Eve looks at it and says, it was pleasing to the eye. Don't you think that God may be trying to keep you from the one thing that could make you happy? So first, they disobeyed God. But sin goes much deeper than that. 
they disobeyed. Through the serpent, they became dissatisfied with the garden. They, dis- they became dissatisfied with the garden. And if you look at that, that's us. Look at how dissatisfied we get. We look in the mirror, we can't stand ourselves. We can't stand the way we look. You live in a home for a little while. After a while, you can't stand that home. The house is not enough. You get married, and it's uh, only after a short while you look at your spouse and you say, they're not enough. You look at your job, and you, you, when you first get the job, you say, this job is perfect for me. Once you start in the job for a while, your job is not enough. You're grateful for the salary that you have. You're thankful for the salary that you're earning. But after a while, you look around, you look next to you, look at what other people have. You say, that salary isn't enough. Nothing is ever good enough. The nature of sin is this. Sin makes you never satisfied with what you have. You, all, you, know, you know how you know? No matter what you have, no matter what you see of people next to you, you'll always find something wrong. That's what sin does. Sin always finds something wrong with those things. It doesn't matter what it is. Sin will always find something wrong. There's nothing more practical than to be able to sit down and say, yeah, I don't have the best job. Yeah, I don't have the perfect spouse. Yeah, look at myself. I'm a mess. I don't have the best figure. I don't have the best personality. Yeah, I'm in this situation or that situation. It's bad. I admit it. It's really bad. So what do I do? What's the most practical thing you could do? Do you just change the situation? Because with the heart you have, now get this, because with the heart you have, even if you were in the Garden of Eden, it would never have been enough. It would not be enough. That's why we need, we look around and we, in our day we say, I need a different spouse. That's why I need a different house. That's why I need a different job. If we had the opportunity, we'd take different children. That's why we do that. The problem is us. The problem is you. Now, I'm not saying that circumstances, you know, don't influence that. I'm not saying that circumstances don't contribute to that or your environment doesn't contribute to the unhappiness. But the root is that you're going to find something wrong with anything. You're going to find something wrong with any situation. And ever since the garden, because we've chosen to take control of our lives, we lost control of our lives. Because we tried to become more of ourselves on our own, we now become less of ourselves on our own. Because we thought we'd become more human as a result of disobeying God, in the process, we've become less human. We've become dehumanized. We've become broken. Adam and Eve, they were driven out of the garden, and the result of that is they're dissociated from God, they were alienated from God, they were dislocated from themselves, dislocated from each other, and ever since then, there's been this raging thirst. Ever since we've been moved out of the garden, there's been this raging thirst. Even paradise didn't satisfy them. That means nothing's going to satisfy us. And as a result, we're working hard. We're constantly trying. We're always insecure. We're working hard. We're overworking to the degree. We're impatient. We're grumbling. Uh, We're working to get a sense of worth from our jobs and from our education and from our relationships and from our status. The character of sin is that it not only shows that there's disobedience, but the disobedience is attributed to, always comes from this attitude of dissatisfaction in our lives. Sin distorts us like that. Sin makes us delusional like that. Look at these Israelites. They say this. It's part of sin's disease. They say, we hate this manna. We had it better when we were slaves in Egypt. That's what they're saying. Never mind the fact that God rescued us. Never mind that we saw his power carrying us across the Red Sea practically. Never mind the fact that they, we saw his fire. We're guided and led by his presence. And yet they turn delusional and they say, you know what? I never wanted this. This is bad. 
Compared to that, that was better. We always say that. How did the serpent, how did the serpent do that? He convinced them. He convinced them, God does not want what's best for you. I mean, he doesn't want you to have that tree because if you had that tree, you would become as him. God doesn't, he, he doesn't have your best interests in mind. And in believing that lie, we've assassinated the character of God. At the root of sin, there's this deep mistrust of God, a refusal to believe. God says, you know what? This is how you want to raise your family. But we don't trust God. We take matters into our own hands. God says, this is how you are to raise your children. But we don't trust that. We take shortcuts. We take matters into our own hands. We say, you know what? I know what's going to make me happy. I know what's going to make this child happy. I know how to have a happy life. That's what we do. We work for it. And we're constantly working. And we're still working. And we're overworking for that. So what we end up doing is we say, you know what? I'm going to obey God as long as it's practical for me. I'm going to obey God as long as it works for me. I'm going to go to church until some other need becomes greater in my life. If you don't believe that there is a good God that's out there for your good and knows what's best because he's designed you, he's created you, he resides with you, then you're always going to work to stay in control of your own life. That's what, that's what life is, really. It's just a battle for control. You're either going to fight and battle and fight and battle or you're going to give in. One day what's going to happen is you're going to lose control, and regardless of whether you lose control or not, you're going to be thirsty. Nothing will ever be enough. Even if you've accomplished what you wanted to accomplish, it will never be enough. You're always going to find something wrong with that. And the reason why is because we've really been built for God alone. We've been built for God alone. So nothing is ever going to be good enough unless you have God. Not to accomplish other things, not to get other things, but unless you have God to get God. Nothing else is going to satisfy you unless you come to God as your satisfaction. Now, how do you know that the tumor is growing in your life? And we talked about the diagnosis of sin, what it is. We talked about the tests that God runs, the suffering that we endure. The Israelites, they, they, uh, they experience suffering. We just talked about the family history, right? What happens? We go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We saw that it's, it really began with a sin uh, in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was not enough. What are the symptoms? There are two things. This is how you know that your grumble is really against God. This is how you know. First, sin leads to alienation, and it leads to suffering. First, it leads to alienation. Verses 4 and 5, the people spoke against God, and they spoke against Moses, it says. In other words, before the reality of the problem actually hit them, before they really come, came to realize their sin, the, the, it became a problem that was alienating them from the very people that loved them, the very people that protected them, the very people that led them, the very people that provided for them. They alienated themselves from God and from Moses. They spoke against them. That's the first thing. So they were really looking at the only true source of satisfaction and saying, I'm dissatisfied. They were looking at the only true source of power and saying, you know what, I have, I have nothing here. I have no power here. I have no say. They're dissatisfied. That's what sin does. The second thing it does is it creates suffering in our lives. You really don't start to see sometimes what's destroying you, what's really hurting you, until you start to suffer. There are a lot of us here who say, well, my life is going pretty well. I'm actually pretty happy with my life. And you know, you know, that is the greatest warning sign that you could be coming content 
in just the life that you've earned and built for yourself. Because one day the suffering is going to come. And that suffering is really intended to do certain things for you. But in verse 6, what happens here, if you see here in verse 6, the thirst is raging, the, the snakes have come, they're suffering, they're dying, there's death, they're being consumed. What's the suffering? At the root, suffering shows us what's really killing us. Suffering reveals the tumor. It shows the tumor, the real tumor that's growing and corroding and eroding our souls. You start to see the tumor more clearly. You start to see the corrosion in the patterns of your life. You see it, you know, before you weren't able to connect the pattern in your career, in your marriage, at church, your children. You see all these things, and they're very separate things in your life. But once you start to suffer, you start to see it when you really suffer. And if you're really waking up, you start to see the connection, the pattern of your life. And you don't need somebody else to tell you because you start to see it. People are probably trying to tell you all your life, but the thing is now you start to see it. And once you begin to suffer, you start to wake up because all of a sudden you start to sense this urgency. Now, the most foolish thing you can do at that time is just to pray against the suffering and to do whatever you can on your own to relieve yourself of the suffering. That is the most foolish thing you can do. So what do you do? Well, you got to prepare for the procedure. You need the preps. In verse 7, verse 7, the suffering hits. And what, what, what do the people say? They say, we've sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. They're speaking to Moses. They said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take these snakes away from us. What they're doing is repentance. Now, we hate that word in our culture today, but they're repenting. What is it? First, they don't say, this sucks. They don't complain again. They don't keep on complaining. There isn't a deeper complaint. They stop to complain. They, don't complain. they say, you know what? They don't say, you know, this is unfair, God. This is unfair, Moses. I mean, all we were doing was complaining, and you sent the snakes to kill us. They don't say that. They're able to, they start out by saying, you know, this is not unfair. They don't say, you know, this is such an overreaction. This is overkill because they know. Because they know. The way you know that you're ready to repent for sin is when you say, you know, Lord, God, this suffering, I know you're not trying to ruin me. If anything, you're trying to wake me up. Help me to see it. That's how you know when you get to that point. When you say, you know, I wasn't listening, but now I hear. I think I'm starting to hear. Uh, when you say, when you're able to say that I realize now that anything you do in my life is probably justified, and it's probably fair, but I trust you're good. And what you're doing right now is you're actually saving me. I feel like I'm being devoured right now, but really what you're doing is you're preventing me from really being devoured. Because now I see that my sin is serious. This is really serious. The way that you know a person is repenting is they don't say, I've got to do whatever it takes to get rid of the problem. Lord, take away my problem. But they say, Lord, take away my sin. You know, it's an amazing thing that's going on in this text because the Israelites who are grumbling, and you've got to think about, put yourself in this picture. We're grumbling and we're complaining against God because of something terrible that, you know, because we're just not satisfied. And if you've ever been in deep dissatisfaction in life or really unhappy about a, a particular situation that really takes you to the soul, it hits you to the soul, and when you really, it's a soulful complaining. When you're doing that, to be able to go from that to be able to say, instead of saying, Lord, take this away from me, take the suffering away from me, to saying, Lord, take away my sin, it takes a certain kind of person and a certain kind of change that needs to take place. 
for a person to be able to say, that's how you know that somebody's repenting. They don't say, take away my problem, God. They say, I think I'm starting to see the Israelites. The amazing thing about this text is the Israelites who are grumbling and complaining against God are able to connect that complaining and then connect that to the suffering because it's not always the case. It's not like we always suffer because, there's, because we're sinners or because, because we have done something wrong. That's not always the case. It's really because of sin in general, because there's brokenness in general in the world. But these Israelites, in their complaining state, they were able to connect their suffering with their sin. They say, for the first time you see in this passage, they say, will you please tell the Lord, will you please plead for us and ask him to take away this this, uh, the snakes from us because of our sin. They're able to connect that. Take away our sin. They're not really sure what it's going to do about their circumstances, but it doesn't matter because what they realize is they've grown very distant from God. Notice the Israelites, they completely stop complaining. Verse 7, there's no more alienation. They say, we've sinned against God and against you. You start to see them coming back. They return to Moses and God but they also saw the connection, that it was caused by specific sins. Now, not all suffering is caused by specific sins in our lives, but if you think about it, if you live a life of lies, the lies ultimately catch up with you. And what's going to happen is it's going to ruin your family, it's going to ruin your reputation, it's going to ruin your trust. If you live a life of malice or if you live a life of greed, what's going to happen? It's going to shape you. That greed is going to twist you and shape you. That malice is going to twist you and shape you. It's going to ruin you, ruin you on the inside out. It's going to ruin other people around you. It's going to make you an angry person. It's going to make other people angry. It's going to distort your view of other people. It's going to distort your view of yourself. Remember, if you've ever read the Scarlet Letter, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, classic, classic book, right? Uh, you have this uh, man, Dimsdale, who committed this tremendous sin because he was a man of the cloak. He was a clergyman. And he commits this tremendous sin. And he's living really a life of lies. And what happened? That those lies are eating him on the inside out. But then you have Chillingsworth, the husband of the woman that he, he committed adultery with. And Chillingsworth knows. He's the one person who knows. What does he do? In his malice, it's twisting him. It's changing him. It's transforming him. And what it does is that anger is eating him inside. And, and he, it's, twisting his, it's twisting his personality. Here, they draw back to Moses. They draw back to God. There's no more alienation. And then they say, pray for us. We've sinned. Pray for us. They don't say, you know what? I need to try harder. They say, pray for us. We're helpless. We just need to come back. We're trapped. We need rescue. What's the cure? What's the cure? Verses 8 to 9. God tells Moses, What I want you to do, I'm paraphrasing. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to take this pole and I want you to make a snake and put it on the pole and tell the people to behold the snake. Look at the snake. And anybody who looks at the snake is going to live. Now, remember, the snake is a symbol of the enemy, the very thing that's actually killing these people. So it almost seems insulting because what it sounds like, these people, they're getting bit by these snakes and they're dying. And what God wants them to do is look to the very thing that's killing them in order to be saved for life. But I'm going to kind of give you a different view of this. Now think about this, because that is what God is doing. But imagine a snake right now comes into this sanctuary, into this worship hall. The first thing you're going to do is everybody starts screaming. Men and women alike, they're going to start screaming. They're going to, jump, they're going to be pushing each other off of these, uh, you know, uh, on the sills. They're going to be jumping onto the sills, hanging up on the pole, right? Going to, that's what they're going to be doing, right? 
And, uh, and they're all going to try to get away from the snake, and they can't see it. It's slithering around. They can't see it. How do you know that the snake has died? How do you know? What's going to give them the hope that they can... You can't just say, hey, folks, come down, come down. It's okay, it's okay. You're not going to say that because there's a snake. You yourself, you're going to be on the chairs. How do you know? How can you convince them that the evil is gone? How do you convince them that this thing that can kill them is gone? It's dead. First, you've got to go and catch it. You've got to catch it. And then, usually what you do, at least back in the day what they did was when they killed it, they would put it on a pole and they would raise it up, Right? Because that's how you know that it's dead. That's how you know you've conquered it. That's how you know you've won. That's how you know there's victory. That's how you know there's assurance. That's how you know there's comfort and there's relief. That's how you know you can go back to living life and you're free. Before you weren't free, you're on the windowsills, you're on the chairs, you can't move, you're paralyzed. And most of us live life like that. Our lives are really... We think we have these grand lives because we've taken matters into our own. We've grabbed life by the tail. And we think we're living life. But really what you've done is you've carved yourself a nice little windowsill to hang in. And you're saying, I'm safe here. Don't you get it? When the snake is slithering around. God tells Moses, I want you to take the snake, put it up on a pole. Anybody who looks at this snake will live. The only way we have hope, the only way we're convinced is to be able to look at the snake on the pole and we know that the power is gone, the power has been destroyed, it's been caught. Then we can say we're free. God is saying, I want you to look at that snake, but in turn, when, you, when you're looking at the snake, you're really turning to me, not the snake itself. You're looking to me in strength. You're looking to me in mercy. You're looking to me to, for healing. And they did that, and when they did, they lived. He's saying, I am the healer. I am the healer. I am the one who heals. But you know, Jesus Christ, he goes even further. Centuries later, in John chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, it's also printed in your uh, bulletins, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, who is really a teacher of the law. He's a teacher of the Bible in his day. And Jesus here, in front of Nicodemus, explains the true meaning of the snake. What he says is this. He says, again, I'm paraphrasing. He says, as this snake in the wilderness was lifted up, I will be lifted up. The Son of Man will be lifted up. In other words, just as people look to that snake, just as people look to the snake to heal them of the curse, to heal them physically, we will be able to look to the Son of Man who will be lifted up in the same way and we will be healed ultimately. We will be healed spiritually. That means several things for us. First, what that means is Jesus will die because when you lift up a snake, it means the snake is dead. When you put a snake on a pole, you put anything on a pole, it means it's dead. What he's saying is, I must die. A dead snake. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be crushed. That's what he's saying. The second thing he's saying when he says, you know, as a snake is lifted up, meaning that it's dead, right? As a snake is lifted up, I will be lifted up. What he's saying is, I will become the snake. I will die as the snake. What's a snake? The snake is the sin. The snake is the evil. The snake represents the curse. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The snake represented the lie. The snake represented the curse, the evil. The snake represented the deceiver, the liar. The snake represented Satan, the enemy. Genesis chapter 3 actually says that snake will one day be crushed. Jesus says, the Son of Man will be lifted up like that snake. I will be crushed. 
The way that I'm going to destroy evil is I will become the evil. And evil will be crushed. And when I am crushed, those who look to me will live. That's what he says. The snake represents all things sin and everything that sin is and everything that sin deserves. Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will become that. I will become the snake. I am going to die. I will be crushed. And I'm not just going to die. I will be crushed as sin. I will be crushed as evil, as the serpent. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus didn't just become a symbol of the curse. He became the curse. On the cross, Jesus suffered the ultimate alienation, the ultimate dislocation, the ultimate dissociation. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I'm alienated, I'm dislocated, I'm dissociated from the Father. And that's why he says, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. On the cross, Jesus suffers the ultimate thirst, the ultimate fire, the ultimate fever. Because he's saying, I'm longing, I'm I'm longing for the Father, and I'm separated from the Father. I desire the Father, I desire to worship the Father, and yet I'm dislocated from the Father. We said hell is a fire. Jesus said, I'm suffering hell on the cross, and that's why I'm thirsty. It's a fire, and it's eating away. It's eating away at me from the inside out. The wrath of God is being poured out on me. It's being poured out, and I'm suffering, and I'm thirsty, and I'm feverish, and I'm being destroyed, and I'm doing all that. Why for you? He's doing that for you. He's doing that for us, for me. He's being consumed for you. Do you know that to the end, he didn't complain. To the end, he did not grumble. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 53, it says, he was satisfied. That's what it says. You know what satisfied Jesus more than remaining in paradise? Jesus left paradise, right? What satisfied Jesus more than remaining in paradise? To be lifted up to become sin. Why? John chapter 17, he says, so that you will be with him. That's what it says. To the degree that you believe that, there's healing in your life. To the degree that you really trust that, that's the restoration of trust. That's how you know that there's power, that can be power. That's how you know that evil is dead. That's how you know there's assurance and comfort that God is actually out there for your good. You know why? Because he sent his own son to die on the cross. That's how you know that he's there for your good. That's how you know. Jesus suffered what he didn't deserve so that we wouldn't suffer what we did deserve. To the degree you believe that, there is the healing of your complaining because you can find satisfaction in Christ, in him. Lastly, there's the prescription. How do you get this? I mean, how do you really work this out? How do you take that in? Right, prescription, you got to take in. you got to ingest it. How do you get this? God tells Moses, I want you to tell them to behold the snake that's lifted up. That's what he tells them. Jesus says, a son of man must be lifted up. Right? So you just have to behold. All you got to do is behold. That's what you do. It takes no work to behold. It takes, you don't have to, if you're trying to behold, you don't behold. If you're trying to see something, it's because you don't see it, right? If you have bad eyes, you're driving on the road, right? And everybody else, it's the scariest 
thing if you're a passenger, but everyone says, hey, you see that sign, you've got to make a right. And you say, what sign? Because you don't see the sign, and you're trying to see the sign. If you're a passenger, you know it's scary, but if you think, if you think about it, it's because you don't see. If you're trying to see, you don't see. He says, as the Son of Man is lifted up, I want you to behold him. That means to trust that Christ had a perfect record. He did everything that we were required to do. But then you've got to trust in what he did. He suffered for our sakes. And it was his joy to suffer for our sakes. That's the love. That's how you know. That's how you know that he's out there wanting the best for you. You know, if you're, uh, how do you, how do you, what's the prescription? If you're pursuing your desires, you're just kind of on this course to just pursuing the things that you want. Number one, the Bible assures you one day you will be dissatisfied. That will be the end of your satisfaction. So if you're feeling empty at times and you're just really working for love and you're working for acceptance and you're working for whatever it is that you think will fulfill you, you're thirsting. You're still living in thirst. You're actually still in the fever. You're still delusional. But if you're trying to just, you know what, I'm going to live a good life, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to pray, I'm going to go to Sunday school, I'm going to do all these things and look at those people, those guys are all pursuing their desires and you're criticizing them and you're judging them. You know what you're doing? You're still working. You're still thirsting. You're still thirsting. Jesus says, the work is done. It is finished. Just behold. I did it. I won it. I conquered it. I conquered the ultimate snake by becoming the curse. So what does it mean to behold? You have to admit and live that you need Christ alone. That's what it means. You can't just say it. There's no power in saying it. We all know that. There's no power in saying, I love you to your spouse when all of your actions, because that means it's, it hasn't gone deeper. You may really think that, but it hasn't gone deep. What it means to go deep is that that beholding has to go into the emptiness. That beholding has to go into the desires. That looking at Christ alone as the source of your satisfaction has to go everywhere. You have to apply that everywhere in your life. Everywhere there's any hint of drivenness in your life, you've got to put it there. And you've got to behold Christ. And you've got to look at his beauty. And you've got to say, you know what? I'm, I'm doing this too, really, for my own sake. I'm doing this, wow, I'm doing this to, because I just need satisfaction in my life. I need this because I just want fulfillment in my life too. I need, that's why I'm doing, that's all these good things that I'm doing, I'm doing that too. And when you start to do that, the prescription is going deep. The gospel starts going deeper. The delusions start to go away. Reality starts to fit in. You know, when you're feverish, you're delusional. But when reality starts to hit it, set in, when the medicine starts to kick in, you start to see things more clearly again. It doesn't ma- when, you're, when you're beholding, it doesn't mean you have to look. You have to wait until you're able to confidently look. He just says, behold. It doesn't mean you have to look unwaveringly long, just for a long time. He just says, Look. It doesn't matter how long you look. It doesn't matter how even accurately you look sometimes. You know, there's a church in America, the church in the world, the church throughout history is filled with denomination after denomination. They're everywhere across the board, even in this city. And so what that tells you is it doesn't in some way, sometimes it doesn't even matter how accurately you look. You just have to look. Do you look? Do you see Christ alone? It's about where you look the direction of your gaze. Do you see Jesus Christ lifted high for you on the cross 
to take away your sin, to take away all that that sin is, the curse of that sin, the dissatisfaction, all of that. And that's the reason why you've been working and working and working in every way, whether you're living a bad life or a good life. That's what you're doing. Will you turn that gaze to Christ? Because that's where the healing is. You know, when we're singing in response, we're going to be singing soon. When we're singing in response, what we're doing is we're looking. When we're praying, you know what we're doing? We're beholding Christ. When we're gathering in community and connecting with community for the sake of spiritual intimacy, we're saying, you know what? It's because I can't do it on my own. All my life I've been trying to do it on my own. I'm weak. I need more of Christ. And I'm broken and I can't put myself together again. And I'm thirsty and only Christ can heal and I need that. Only he can quench and I need that. Only he can satisfy God says, well, you've got to do that in the context of community. When he was doing that, he saved them as a people. That's what he did. Do you believe that? Do you trust? Will you trust that the Son of Man was lifted up so that anyone who looks to him will live? And when you live, you will find the deepest of satisfaction. Your greatest longings, your greatest longings for satisfaction and fulfillment will be, will be discovered and rediscovered and rediscovered again and again and again in Christ. Will you trust that? It doesn't matter. You know what, why it's called the gospel? It doesn't matter how you came when you walked into this room today. It doesn't matter who you are or where you were when you walked into this place today. You may be delusional right now. In fact, that's the first step to sanity is to recognize that you're delusional right now. That's, the beauty. that's why it's good news. The work is done. Christ has been lifted up. Now when we look to him, we can worship because we know what he did. And then we know why he did it and that he was satisfied in doing it for us. Do you trust that? Will you trust that this week? Let's pray.